yourself go Find some place you know You can use your words, use your hands You can change the world, just pretend Express yourself, take a chance and you'll see Who you'll be It's time to express yourself Where teens talk and the world listens Presented by Star Style Productions as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. You'll rock to an hour of adolescent fusion with your teen hosts and on-air reporters. Meet and chat with cool celebrities, exhilarating experts, and tenacious teens with subjects regarding anything and everything that you want to know. It's time to kick off the fun with our star teens. Welcome to Express Yourself. Everything is Theoretically impossible until it's done. Robert Heinlein. Hello and welcome to Express Yourself. We're a program by, for, and with creative young people. A platform to give teens a voice. Right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. From Cynthia Bryant, producer of Express Yourself and Star Style Productions, we bring this program to the airwaves as an outreach service of the Be The Star You Are charity, a top nonprofit honored by GuideStar and great nonprofits. I'm Dia Hijivali, and I am one of your hosts for today's show. Be The Star You Are wants to thank everyone who has volunteered and supported BTSYA over the years. We are thrilled to be serving the world. If you'd like to help us celebrate being a top nonprofit, for the donation, please visit www.btsya.org. Every dollar counts, and we will use the funds for our outreach programs. Make sure to listen to Express Yourself wherever you listen to your radio or music. iTunes, Amazon, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and more. We broadcast from the Empowerment Channel on Voice America Radio the largest radio network in the world. We also want to give a shout out to our producer, who is the founder and executive director of Be The Star You Are. Cynthia Bryant was recognized and featured this week on the Points of Light Inspiration Honor Roll. The Points of Light Honor Roll feat celebrates outstanding individuals who take action to help brighten communities and improve the lives of others. Since 1999, Cynthia Bryan has dedicated her entire untiring leadership to Be The Star You Are and its volunteers without pay but plenty of passion. The George W. Bush Points of Light Awards honors those who demonstrate the power of service and who are driving significant and sustained impact through their everyday actions and words that light the path for other points of light. Visit the 2021 Honor Roll and meet the honorees at www.pointsoflight.org. Congratulations, Cynthia. This is well-deserved. We have an amazing show planned for today, all about science. In segment two, Nihal and I will be interviewing Susan McCormick, a Seattle writer and doctor. And in segment three, I will be talking about good versus evil, and how this plays out in psychological science. And right now, Nihal will be talking all about science. Science. It's everywhere around us, and is always helping us in our day-to-day lives. From the water we boil for tea in the morning, to the lights we turn off in the evening. As Carl Sagan has said, 
somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known. How is science used in our everyday lives? Science is very essential in our daily life. We use science in day-to-day life. We wake up and use toothpaste and our toothbrush, which are both given to us by science. We use science in cooking, eating, clothing, and etc. Even baking involves basic knowledge of science, and baking machines such as ovens, microwaves, are endowments of science. Now more than ever, science is our daily news and news feeds as we navigate through the COVID-19 pandemic. How does science benefit society? Scientific knowledge allows us to develop new technologies, solve practical problems, and make informed decisions, both individually and collectively. Because products are so useful, the process of science intertwined those applications. New scientific knowledge may lead to new applications. Science also opens the doors to new possibilities, whether it may be a biologic to help with their rheumatoid arthritis or allowing vegetarians to eat a hamburger that tastes so close to the real thing, you can call it impossible. Wow, that's so cool how, um, how they're able to recreate meat for vegetarians like that. Another question I have is, what is the best scientific discovery? Back before no one understood how genetic traits were passed from generation to generation, two scientists named James Watson and Francis Crick discovered the double helix structure for DNA, and they founded the science of modern molecular biology. They help modern-day scientists better understand how the human body works at the cellular level. Today, biotechnology is a billion-dollar industry, and that includes things such as antibodies, genetic fingerprinting, modern forensics, and rapid gene sequencing. Future research in the field includes gene therapy to help people with genetic disorders. Without great scientists like Watson and Crick, none of this would have been possible. Wow, there's, that's so cool how some scientists have contributed so much to this research industry. Um, yep. how, is sci- how is science relevant to the pandemic we are facing? It's relevant to the pandemic we are facing because science is being used for research and to find the symptoms and the effects of the vaccine. And many scientists, they work long hours to try to develop the vaccines for different age groups, too. And also through science, we learn ways to avoid getting COVID-19 by learning how the virus works, the way it spreads, and the causes complicate and the complications that it causes. Thanks, Nihal, for such an informative segment. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Please show your love for more segments by donating on btsya.org. Keep listening for more as we interview Susan McCormick in the next segment. Make a world of difference in a world of differences when you support Be the Star You Are 501c3, a literacy and positive media charity dedicated to empowering women, families, and youth. Visit bethestarur.org to make a tax deductible donation today. Everyone counts. Donate today. Be the star you are.org. Be the lucky star you are.
Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. Be the star you are. Light up the flame that burns. Low literacy and poor communication skills have been identified in studies as major contributors to general conduct disorders, psychiatric disorders, criminal behavior, and adolescent suicide. To live and prosper in this society, we must be lifelong learners with access to knowledge and skills that can sustain our lives at work, at home, and in our communities. Be the star you are. 501c3 Charity has been working to increase literacy and improve positive message programming since 1999. You can help by making a tax-deductible donation today. Visit www.bethestarur.org. Everybody counts. www.bethestarur.org. Be the lucky star you Listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be the Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Hello, and welcome back to Express Yourself. I'm Dia Hitivali, and today's show revolves around science. In this segment, I will be interviewing Susan McCormick, who is a writer and doctor who lives in Seattle. She graduated from Smith College and George Washington University School of Medicine and served as a doctor for nine years in the U.S. Army before moving to the Pacific Northwest and civilian practice. In addition to the ad- antidote, she wrote a cozy mystery series the fog ladies she also wrote granny can't remember me a light-hearted picture book about alzheimer's disease and dementia visit her website at www.susanmccormickbooks.com we are so excited to have you on the show miss mccormick welcome to express yourself thank you so The first thing I wanted to ask is, what made you decide to write a book catered towards a middle-grade audience focused on disease and health? This is a a very fun story. When I had a middle-grader, I volunteered in his classroom for the chicken wing dissection class, which I thought I was perfectly uh, suited for since I was a doctor. And I practiced ahead of time. I got my own chicken wing and played with it. And I was ready to scintillate the sixth graders and show them about muscles and tendons and bones. And I put it in their hand and I moved it back and forth and showed them how all the tissues and the tendons worked. And I thought that they would be so excited. 
And they were excited, uh, but they weren't quite as excited as I was. So then I thought, oh, I'll just tell them about my journey to be a doctor, because some of the kids in the class wanted to be doctors. I thought they'd be so excited. And they were excited, and they asked lovely questions. But they were studying something else, and they were much more excited about that. And that was mythology, Greek gods, and fathers that swallowed their children whole, and uh, people with, with snakes coming out of their heads because they'd all read Rick Reardon, and they knew everything there was to know about mythology, and then some. And so I thought, would it be possible to spark the interest in the human body, in health and disease, the way kids were so excited about mythology? And so I created this story, which weaves in the maladies, like the lightning thief weaves in mythology. So that's how the story came to be. Oh, that's so... That's such an interesting story, and I really, really like how um, I really like how it's so funny that I I think as a kid I would be more interested in dissecting a chicken wing, but it's so interesting how all of them were more interested in mythology. Nihal, do you want to take the next? Oh yeah, uh, Nihal, do you want to do the next question? Yeah. So. Did you come across anything interesting or surprising during your research when you were writing the book? Oh, gosh. There's two, yeah, two huge areas that I did. One was about animals. So um, there's a special dog in the book, a kind of a magical dog who has an extra sense. And this is not so far out of the ordinary. Um, but uh, everybody who's got dogs knows how wonderful they are. But, for instance, taste. We have 9,000 taste buds. Dogs only have 1,700, so that's why kibble doesn't taste so bad to them. But smell, they have 10,000 to 100,000 better a sense of smell than we do. So like here in Seattle, we have dogs that across the uh, Puget Sound waters can actually detect the scat from orca whales. Dogs are amazing, but as far as people goes and how dogs um, can help uh, people with illness, we put off um, these things called volatile organic compounds uh, in our breath or in our urine or through our pores and our skin. So a dog can tell if you have lung cancer. A dog can tell if you have bladder cancer. A dog could detect low blood sugar for people who are diabetic. So that was just the things that I learned about animals were um, loads of fun. And then, um, even though I'm a doctor, I had to research all the diseases because there's so much to know and, and so much to learn. And so smallpox, I knew something about smallpox, but I didn't know an awful lot about it. And um, smallpox was devastating. It's a horrible disease. And if you look at pictures from it, even from the 1970s, Bangladesh, um, the, the pictures are just horrifying. But it's been around for 3,000 years. They found it in mummies. Um, and uh, it's been around all the way up till 1979. And in the 20th century alone, it killed 300 million people. It was just enormously um, dangerous and uh, deadly. And so um, the World Health Organization in 1959, they'd had a vaccine around since um, 1796, one of the, the greatest inventions of the vaccine, Edward Jenner, uh, with taking the cow, um, the milkmaid's uh, um, um, uh, pus who had had cowpox and creating a vaccine out of it. But uh, in 1959, we still had tremendous smallpox throughout the whole world. And so the WHO said, we are going to eradicate this. And 
there wasn't a lot of money and it didn't really work out. It worked in the United States. It did actually get pretty much eradicated in the United States. But in 1967, they redoubled their efforts and the whole world put in money and the whole world was up with this campaign. And the last case of smallpox eradication, the smallpox was in 1979. They declared it eradicated. We don't need vaccines for it anymore. It is gone, gone, gone. So this incredibly horrible disease that had been around for 3,000 years under the tutelage of of the WHO, in 20 years with a worldwide effort, they were able to eradicate it. So it's just amazing. Yeah, that's really crazy to know that they were just able to make the smallpox disease, such a deadly disease, go away so fast and so quickly. And it was also interesting to know that dogs are able to detect so many different diseases in people. And I think that's really helpful and a really cool thing that dogs are able to do. Dogs are amazing. Yeah, dogs are amazing. Um, so how do we make learning about science, medicine, and health fun for kids? Well, I think that books like uh, The Lightning Thief, um, which took something that, you know, that's an interesting topic, mythology, but there weren't lots of kids uber, uber, uber interested before that. And so making things into an adventure story, making things into a fantasy, um, these things, and the way in, in my book, The Antidote, the, um, the boy has an incredible adventure through, um, through the story. He is um, able to see disease and injury, illness, anything wrong with the body, and he is the last in a long line of healers in his family, and they're also battling the actual physical embodiment and creator of disease. And so with this good versus evil, um, gave me this ability to uh, show all kinds of health problems and um, and disease throughout the whole story that, that the kids have to battle, which makes it an exciting task. And so I think that as, um, as writers, we can spark interest by taking these um, technical things, and it can apply to any part of STEM or anything, really. And if you can weave it into a story, it makes it much, much, much more interesting. Wow, that is so interesting on how all that works, because I agree that as, like, kids... I feel like in order for them to be interested in learning, it has to be some sort of suspense or something that'll actually like motivate them to read because a lot of the times kids don't have as much of an attention span. So I think that's a really good way to keep the kids engaged in what they're reading. So a question that I had was, I saw that um, the Fog Ladies, there's a series and it's called A A Cozy Mystery. So I was wondering what that meant. Oh, this is so fun if you don't know what a cozy is. So everybody knows what a cozy mystery is, but you may not know that's what it's called. It's a genre, subgenre of mysteries. So there's all kinds of mysteries, but this is a subgenre, and it means that there's no violence on stage. There's always a murder, but there's no actual violence on stage. And usually it's in an enclosed setting. So you have a group of characters, and the killer is going to be one of those characters. 
So you can think about this like um, uh, uh, murder on the Orient Express, a perfect cozy, a train. They're all on the train together. You know it's going to be one of those people. Or sometimes it's set in um, in a country estate, and people go, the unwitting people go there for the weekend, and a murder happens on the first night, and you know that somewhere in that house is going to be um, the killer, is going to be someone amongst us. There was a movie uh, recently with Daniel Craig, Knives Out. That's a cozy um, because it's a, it's a family. Um, and there's, it's not a violent movie at all, but there is a murder. And so um, the murderer is going to be one of those people. So in my uh, cozy murder mystery, I set it in an elegant apartment building in San Francisco. It was actually very similar to an apartment building I lived in there when I did my medical training there. And people of all ages live together in an apartment building, and a lot of people have lived there for a long time, so they know everybody's secrets. And so then, if people start to die, you know that the killer is going to be one of those people in the apartment building. And the Fog Ladies, they're a group of funky senior sleuths, so it's a group of older ladies and one overtired young doctor uh, who band together to solve the murders. Oh, that's so interesting. I Now I guess I do know what a cozy mystery is, because... Um, I thought it was, I don't know, the way, the way like, the word sounds, I thought it would be, like, a mystery that you read, like, during winter. I don't know, something like that. That's a great idea. And there are cozies set in the winter, but it just is a much bigger term than that. Yeah. And actually, I think, now that I think about it, that's actually probably one of my favorite types of genres, because it's, like, you get, like, the suspense, but it's nothing that's super disturbing or, like, scary. It's That's more exactly like a right. Mystery. And it's usually a wonderful puzzle to figure out too, a who done it to figure out. Yeah. So another question I had is um what inspired you to write like mystery books? I have always uh liked mystery books. And in fact, when I was a kid, a really little kid, I wanted to be a ballerina, a doctor, and a writer. But uh, I actually was in my first ballet performance at age four, and I curtsied, and my bottom hit the backdrop, and the whole thing crashed to the floor, and that was the entire end of my whole ballet career. It was horrible. It was awful and humiliating. But then I could still be a writer and a doctor, and so um, to be a doctor takes a long, long time. You have to go to college, then medical school, then residency, then fellowship. And for me, then I did nine years in the Army because they had paid for medical school. But finally, I was a doctor. And then being a writer took even longer for me. But um, but my beginning writing career started at age nine uh, when I wrote a book called uh, Death in the Cemetery. So I always liked, I always liked uh, murder mysteries. And because of that book, I got to go to a young author's conference. And I was so excited to go to this thing that I dreamed God let me skip Friday so I could get right to Saturday when the conference happened. So when I woke up and my parents said, no, it's Friday, I didn't believe them. (laughs) And I thought I was going to miss the (laughs) conference. But I have always liked mysteries. I've always read mysteries. Um, When I was a kid, there was a series called um, Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. And I really enjoyed that. There were probably 30 or more books in that thing. I really liked that. And I have liked cozies my whole life. Agatha Christie, I love Agatha Christie. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember when I was younger, I I really loved reading mystery books. Um, So that's why, um, yeah, that's really inspirational how you liked reading it as a kid and then you actually ended up doing it as a career. I agree. You know, I I always loved reading them, so it made it natural that then that would be the kind of book I would 
decide to write. But I think those kind of books that you read as a kid, you always love those books. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I also really love uh, mystery books, too. I think when I was a little kid, one of my favorite mystery book series that I probably read was Nancy Drew. And, yeah, they're um, so enjoyable. Yeah, and I would just sit there on my couch in a blanket, and I would just read for hours a day when I didn't have other things to do. I would just sit there, and I would look forward to the weekends, too, and I would sit there and read book, read the Nancy Drew series, too. And... I also even I also like watching movies too, and my probably my favorite genre of movie is also probably mystery movies or like something to do with like a mystery happening or solving a mystery, and um, and I think it kind of those books or mo- types of movies kind of resonate with children because it kind of builds that suspense and it kind of lets your imagination run wild to what's about to happen or what's going to happen. Sure. And a funny thing about those Nancy Drews and also the Hardy Boys is if you look back at them, almost every chapter ends with an exclamation mark. And so when I was writing my um, fantasy, The Antidote, which I hope is going to be middle grade and up, I I actually, a lot of adults have read it too, because a lot of adults read um, fantasy of all ages. But uh, when I was writing it, I actually was thinking about those Nancy Drew and and, um, Hardy Boy books that every chapter ended with something exciting happened. And so I tried to continue that with the book to, you know, entice people to read the next page after the chapter ended. Yeah, that's great. And I think that what they did with those chapters and adding that, it kind of, again, builds up with that suspense or like kind of lets the reader know that something exciting is happening or is about to happen. And I know that you said that you're a doctor and a writer, but do you have a preference for one career over another, or do you think they interchange and kind of complement one another? Well, uh, every writer needs the day job. It's very hard to make a... um, Very few writers are lucky enough to be able to have just writing as a career, although some do. And I was lucky in that my day job, being a doctor, was a fantastic day job. And um, they do indeed complement each other. Um, As a doctor, you have to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, and you have to also listen to your patients to be able to understand their disease. And as a writer, you actually have to listen to your characters because a lot of times they have an idea about what's going to happen to them in the story, and it's actually different from what I had planned. And so just as an example, in the antidote, there is this magical dog, and I um, I based him off a dog that I had. We have giant dogs, and this particular dog was in Newfoundland, an enormous furry black dog. And they're water rescue dogs, so they love water. So uh, my dog, Edward, would constantly be bobbing his head in the water bowl because they love water, and his furry scruff would be wet all the time, and we just could not keep him dry. And it got actually a little bit smelly. And poor Edward also was not blessed with uh, fragrant breath. He had very bad breath. So he was this adorable, cute, black ball of fluff. And people would approach him, and then when they got nearer, they would actually smell his breath, and, oh, they'd back off. Ooh, they'd say, he's got some, some bad breath. And so I made this character in the book that was like that. 
And that's all I did in my head That's as far as the plan went. But then, as books are, as you're writing away on the keyboard, these magical things happen. And his bad breath, his hideous breath, actually turns into a small turning point in the story, which I had not planned at all, but was just one of the wonderful things about writing and how listening to your characters can be very helpful uh, when you're writing that first draft. Yeah, that's great. I think that even when I'm like writing my essays for class or anything like that, I think that when you're writing um, about when you're writing about a nonfiction topic, you kind of have like a focal point and kind of where what to write about. But when you're kind of writing about a fantasy or like a fictional or whatever it may be, you kind of let your imagination a little bit run wild. And sometimes just sitting at the keyboard and thinking about things and just writing it down when you're thinking kind of also helps me too. And I think that it's it's a great thing to I think it's a great thing to be a doctor like you are and a writer at the same time because both I think both things you can use together and you can write amazing stories like you have done so too. Yeah, I was very happy to be able to put some of the medicine in the stories. And in fact, I um, also hid, not hid, in the Cozy Murder Mysteries, I try to hide these um, uh, Easter eggs, these public safety announcements like, don't cut a bagel in your hand, for instance, because there's a lot of very important tendons in your hand, and if you cut one, you can be very, very sad. Or don't get a jailhouse tattoo. So those are little things hidden in the cozy murder mysteries. But in the antidote, I actually put things in there that I thought were medical, medically important things. For instance, um, uh, I, I talk about how to do a Heimlich maneuver, and I uh, also talk about how and when to use an AED, an automatic external defibrillator. And so um, those were sort of medical things that I could put in there that I really wanted people to know how to, how to do and how to use. Oh, I really like that idea about putting like little Easter eggs in the book. I think that's a very creative idea. And I always like like when watching a movie or something, whenever they have like little fun hints like that, I always enjoy that. So I really like that idea. And um, kind of going off of Nihal's previous question, do you think it's hard to balance, like, time? And do you ever feel, like, completely drained with both, like, by doing, like, a doctor as a day job and then writing, like, in your free time? Do you ever feel like it's too much to handle or do you enjoy it? So this was probably one of the hardest things. And for anybody who um, is going to do a creative endeavor on top of their regular job, this is a very hard balance. And I was a mom of two boys. We had this huge dog. You know, I'm a wife and I'm a doctor. And time is very, very uh, precious. But um, the way I did it, in Seattle in the summer, um, the sun gets up at 4.30 in the morning and it shines right into our bedroom and wakes me up. And so I actually, on the weekends that I was not working, I would get up at 4.30 in the morning and come downstairs, and my big, huge Newfoundland dog would come with me, and that's when I would write. And my family would get up about 9 o'clock in the morning, and so I had between 4.30 a.m. and 9 a.m. on the weekend to write. And then once the family got up, you know, it's just a chaos mess of guitar lessons and piano lessons and soccer games and what's for breakfast and what's for lunch, and, and there was no writing after that. And so... That's when I did it, and I actually wrote um, three full-length books and the picture book about Alzheimer's disease. I wrote it 
on those weekend mornings. In the winter, it's a little harder because it's very dark in Seattle in the morning in the winter and very cold. So I would have to set an alarm. Uh, but that's still when I did it was it, on those weekend mornings. And so it is not easy. And other people, I'm a morning person. Other people are night people and they might do it at a different time. But you're right, actually carving out the time and dedicating it and saying, I am going to do this um, is a big um, sticking point in uh, people trying to have creative endeavors. Oh, wow. That's actually so inspiring how um, you would just actually like wake up super early and get things done. And that's actually something that I feel like is something I do also. Um, Like whenever I have like a passion project, I always think that mornings are the best time to do things because it's like when everyone else is asleep and it's like very peaceful and productive. So I really like how, even though you're so busy with so many other things, how you still took time to commit to the dream you had and actually see it blossom. And I really, um, I really find that inspirational. I agree with you a hundred percent about the mornings, a very peaceful time. Yeah. And I think too, that doing your work or doing whatever it may be in the morning before everybody else wakes up is, a good thing because even I do that sometimes if I have to finish a project or if it's like an extracurricular activity, I'll try to work. Um, I'll try to work in the morning and do more things in the morning and try to finish before everybody else wakes up because then once everybody else wakes up, it starts to get busy and it starts to kind of uh, like it starts to get really busy and to do more things and. Kind of going back to your book, um, how did you kind of like find the inspiration to write The Fog Ladies? Oh, The Fog Ladies. So I lived in that apartment building all those years ago. And because I did love cozy murder mysteries, I thought when I lived there, this would be a great place for murder. But, of course, that was a long time ago. And then years and years went by. And then I decided I was going to finally write this thing. And that was the um, the setting that immediately came to mind. And then the idea for the name of the book, The Fog Ladies, and the group of ladies came to me just in one of those moments in the shower. Um, early morning fog burning off by midday is something you hear on the radio over and over when you live in San Francisco. And you can just count on the radio saying that every single morning during a certain season. And so these old ladies whose husbands have died, they turn to each other and they do uh, volunteer projects, et cetera, but really they are bonding with each other as, as, um, as they get older. And they can count on each other like they can count on early morning fog burning off by midday. And so once I had this group name of the ladies and the title of the book, the whole thing just fell into place from there. Wow, that's really great. And I think that using kind of like that inspiration and what kind of like inspired you to write about the fog lazy is a really amazing thing. And I had another question in mind. Um, what are some things people should be doing during the pandemic to kind of keep them healthy and make sure that they're not like becoming like, I guess, lazy or contracting another health problem? What should they do to keep healthy? You know, that's an excellent uh, point. 
Um, this has nothing to do with the pandemic, but when people come into the hospital for one reason or other, often they're lying around or sitting around, and we actually have to do things to make sure they are taking deep breaths to keep their lungs healthy, moving their legs to keep uh, the blood flow moving so they don't develop blood clots. And so just as you say, we could be now sitting at our in one spot at a computer, so many more things are on the computer, and now suddenly your ergodynamics are all wrong and you've got cricks in your neck and cricks in your back and cricks in your hand, and you haven't moved out of the chair in hours, and God forbid, you know, you haven't been outside. And so um, there are those sort of self things like get outside and move with or without your mask, depending on where your um, your local place is. Uh, get up and move. Make sure your computer is in front of your eyes and make sure your hands are, you know, um, uh, night, your elbows belt bent at 90 degrees so your computer is well above your hands. You know, these small things, people are getting backaches and all kinds of cricks. And I think that also probably like many families, uh, we now have been cooking three meals, three meals a day at home. It's completely different than our life was before this when our kids would have a meal at, at school. And so you have to make sure those meals are, as the mom, I have to make sure those meals are healthy and, um, and then that the kids are eating right and getting exercise. But more than that and much bigger than that, and my book was actually written before the COVID epidemic, which is crazy because the whole book deals with current diseases like um, appendicitis and, and um, heart attacks and things you might encounter like food allergies, but it also diseases with, it also deals with um, infectious diseases and pandemics of the past like plague and Spanish flu and smallpox. And these pandemics of the past were far worse thank goodness, than our current COVID. Far worse, uh, thank goodness, you know, thank goodness for us, our COVID is not so bad. But um, they all share similarities. And this business about, uh, you know, staying away from others and wearing masks during plague, the doctors had that very scary mask that um, they called it a bird's beak mask, I think. But you've probably seen pictures very scary masks. Uh, but those were the doctors because they knew it was bad air. They knew it was something they were breathing in that was giving, uh, giving the, that was spreading the plague. And so the um, wearing a mask turned out to be incredibly successful in tamping down uh, COVID-19. And then vaccination. All kinds of diseases have been conquered with vaccination, like measles, which it's almost 100% of people will get measles, almost 100%. It's so contagious. And so the measles vaccine was one of those great, um, uh, wonderful things that happened. Smallpox eradicated because of a vaccine. So now we have this vaccine for COVID, and thank goodness we do, because people feel so much safer now that we have the vaccine. Yeah, that's so true. I'm so grateful that the vaccine is finally here, because I feel like COVID took up so much time in my life, and I feel like that everyone feels that way. And um, and I agree with the the masks from the plague. Those really really scare me for some reason. I always like see them like in my nightmares. They are um, very scary. I have, and that was the doctor. Yeah. You know, that was the doctor coming at you with that mask on. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd want to see the doctor if he had that on, but. Um, uh, the next question I had is, uh, do you think COVID-19 can be eradicated completely? Well, if smallpox can be 
eradicated completely after 3,000 years in a 20-year campaign, then I think we have some hope for COVID, yes. And remember that our vaccine for COVID, they had been working on this for years, not for COVID, but for other things. But this vaccine came together in less than a year. Scientifically, it's unheard of. We are making such strides in science and in medicine. So, yes, if smallpox can be eradicated in 20 years after 3,000 years, then we have hope for COVID. Yeah, I agree with that because even, um, like, there's no, like, no pandemic ever has ever lasted for ever, if that makes sense. It's always come to an end. And so I agree with that. So um, thank you so much, Ms. McCormick. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today's segment, but I absolutely loved our conversation today. Please be sure to check out Ms. McCormick's book, The Antidote, The Fog Ladies, and Granny Can't Remember Me. This has been my pleasure. It has been wonderful speaking with you, too. Yes, thank you, Susan, so much. And guys, also be able to check out, also check out her website, https susanmccormickbooks.com. And keep listening more as I continue our conversation about good versus evil with Dia in the next segment. Be the star you are. Light up the flame that burns. Make a world of difference in a world of differences when you support Be the Star You Are 501c3, a literacy and positive media charity dedicated to empowering women, families, and youth. Visit bethestaryouare.org to make a tax deductible donation today. Everyone counts. Donate today. Be the star you are.org. Be the lucky star you Are you a teen interested in becoming a radio personality? The Positive Message Outreach Program of Be The Star You Are Charity trains dedicated young people to be reporters and hosts on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com for information. That's ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Don't forget to tune in to Express Yourself Tuesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Kids, where teens talk and the world listens. Be the star you are Light up the flame that burns Low literacy and poor communication skills have been identified in studies as major contributors to general conduct disorders, psychiatric disorders, criminal behavior, and adolescent suicide. To live and prosper in this society, we must be lifelong learners with access to knowledge and skills that can sustain our lives at work, at home, and in our communities. Be the Star You Are 501c3 charity has been working to increase literacy and improve positive message programming since 1999. You can help by making a tax-deductible donation today. Visit www.bethestaryouare.org. Everybody counts. www.bethestaryouare.org. Be the lucky star you are. 
You're listening to Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel, where teens talk and the world listens. Express Yourself is produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Now, back to our star teens. Welcome back to Express Yourself. Today's show is all about science, and in this final segment, Dio will be talking about good versus evil and how this plays out in psychological science. So, um, if you were wondering what the definition of good is, good means being selfless, empathizing with others, feeling compassion, and putting others' needs before your own, sacrificing your well-being for others, Um, And there's so many other traits, such as being benevolent, being altruistic, being selfless, and being able to see beyond the superficial differences between people, such as their race, their gender, and their nationality, and realize that we all relate to a common human essence beneath everyone. Some examples of good and evil are Mahatma Gandhi gaining equal rights and freedom for Indians and Martin Luther King Jr. who gained equal rights and freedoms for African Americans. They both had an exceptional degree of empathy and compassion which overrode any concerns for their own ambitions or well-being. That's great. I agree that with being good that you have to self-sacrifice, you have to be selfless, you have to Try to do your best that you can for others and yourself. And you have to also be able to, like you already said, be able to look over the race and gender, nationality of other people and just see them as a human being and a person that if they are in need, that needs help or anything like that. So you already stated the definition of good, but what's the definition of evil? That's a good question. So evil essentially is the opposite of good. People who are evil are unempathetic, which means they don't really care about other people and they can't feel other people's pain. Um, They also believe that the world surrounds all about them and they believe that their needs and desires are the most important thing in the world more than other people. And they also tend to be narcissistic. Examples of evil and... um, Examples of evil people are dictators like Stalin and Hitler and also serial killers and rapists. I would argue that their main characteristic is that they're unable to empathize with other people. They can't sense other suffering, they have a lack of perspective, and they usually are very manipulative. They treat human beings like objects. They just think of them as chess, chess players that they manipulate for their own cruel agendas. Yeah, and I can kind of see how those characteristics has played in to like dictators or evil dictators such as already said like Hitler and Stalin and how that they weren't able to recognize that the people that they were hurting were suffering and they kind of again like you said they already thought they thought of them as chess pieces and kind of pieces to a board game or something but do you what is like a highly sensitive person A highly sensitive person is someone who kind of falls under the category of a good person. It's one in five adults, and also I happen to be like a highly sensitive person. And it's not really a personality defect, 
effect is actually just a normal trait and it actually has some positives to it as well. So essentially, if you're highly sensitive, you are born with a nervous system that processes every stimulation you feel very deeply. So this is sights, sounds, and textures. So for me, for example, I'm sensitive not only emotionally, but I have like a sensitive um, stomach, like I'm allergic to a lot of things. And I'm also like really sensitive to loud noises. So it kind of plays out in all aspects of yourself. So a downside of high, highly sensitive person is that they get really easily overwhelmed. So here are some characteristics that I find really interesting. So highly sensitive people aren't able to watch certain disturbing movies because it stays on their mind for like forever. And if it's something like, particularly disturbing, it will really, really impact the, the like at least the next week of their life. Um, Another trait is that they get very stressed and anxious when someone raises their voice because um, they really try to, like, they're kind of people-pleasers. They try to make other people happy, and this is really overstimulating to them because it bothers them a lot. They also predict pattern recognition abilities for future thinking really well. So... They're kind of able to have a sixth sense where they can kind of predict the future. Not really as like not really as a psychic, but they're able to sense patterns really well. And because of that, they have a pretty good probability of guessing the future correctly. They also can be called an emotional sponge, which means they absorb other people's emotions really, really well, which kind of is because they have so much empathy. For me personally, I feel like when I'm around someone who's sad, I also become sad. And when I'm around someone who's happy, I also become happy. So that's kind of how it plays out in highly sensitive people. Another thing is caffeine, alcohol, and prescription drugs can have a strong effect on highly sensitive people because just their digestive system and everything is way more sensitive to the effects of caffeine and all that stuff. And when others are uncomfortable, they can kind of sense why, because they're really good at reading other people. So it's almost like they can tell what's going on inside their brain or what they're really thinking about. Another thing is that they're very creative. So they're very deeply moved by art and beauty, and they often pursue creative fields. And um, they're, they're really emotional that they cry when they see really beautiful things. And this... A story I read is that this um, kid, while watching a movie with her entire classmates, she was so moved by it that she started literally crying, not really tears of sadness, but just tears of awe. And while a lot of the other people in her class um, didn't really seem to care as much. Another thing is that they have a strong inner world, so a really rich imagination and natural creativity. And this is something that I definitely have because I have a tendency to daydream a lot. And like, while I'm just like talking to someone, sometimes I space out and people are like, hello, are you there? So that's kind of how it can kind of be bad sometimes if, if you space out too much. Also, if there's something like bad that happens, they often feel flooded with like a lot of emotional, like, sadness and other emotional feelings and they feel that if meaning is lacking in their life so if 
if they feel like what they're doing in life doesn't have a purpose or they just don't feel very fulfilled, this will really, really cause them pain because they think that that life is all about seeking eternal truth and all about making love and connections and justice. So if they feel like those basic needs aren't being fulfilled, they're just going to be very unhappy. So that's a lot about highly sensitive people. I think in a way that I am somewhat a highly sensitive person too. Like, for example, like how you said that can like watching certain movies, they'll stay, stay in that person's mind or they, they'll kind of like bother them a bit. And I think that that's kind of the way it is for me on certain movies. Like if something bad happened or disturbing happened, like it kind of, I guess, stays on your mind. And I kind of think this one is like when you said that when others are uncomfortable, you kind of know why. I kind of think that as like a superpower in a way that you can kind of realize that why they're uncomfortable and you can maybe even stop it. Or if you're the one making them uncomfortable, you can stop what you're doing that's making them uncomfortable. So they kind of like feel better about themselves and they kind of become more comfortable in the environment that they are. So you kind of showed us that a highly sensitive person is like a good person who kind of cares for others and has empathy for others. But what is like a psychopath or like an evil person? Yeah, so I did. I chose to talk about psychopaths because I personally find them very interesting and they kind of represent the evil side of the spectrum. Obviously not all of them are evil, but a large majority of them tend to be. So psychopaths are 1% of the population and the main definition of a psychopath is someone who doesn't really understand or feel empathy or feel fear. So kind of the opposite of the sensitive person. So one really interesting study I saw about it is when people with psychopathic tendencies shown a picture of someone who's scared, they were really unable to identify that the emotion the person was feeling was fear. Most um, normal people were able to identify that as fear, but psychopaths, they have a dysfunction of the amygdala, which is basically the fear response in the brain because it's very small. So they're not really able to understand fear on other people. Another thing about psychopaths is that they're dopamine junkies. So dopamine is basically a rewarding feeling from a brain that you feel after like doing something fun. It's kind of like while you're on a roller coaster. But they feel that for a lot of the times for stuff that is not so beneficial for society. And example is Ted Bundy, who was a serial murderer and psychopath. His quote says, I just like to kill. I wanted to kill, which shows that his source of dopamine was murdering people, which is really unfortunate. And that's kind of an example of how they really, really crave dopamine. They also, this is actually more of a theory, but I think this is so interesting, is that they have an empathy switch. So they're able to turn the switch on if they want to actually feel empathy for other people. And a lot of them actually do feel empathy for their own children, but not really for random strangers. So that's why sometimes psychopaths are able to appear very friendly and charming. And Ted Bundy, for example, he was able to turn into this very charming persona that that appealed to a lot of young women. And that's actually how he started to like, so they trusted him and then he would 
murder them. So that's kind of the thought process of psychopaths is that they like to have like charm, use their charm, and then they like to do um, like bad things that give them dopamine. So another really interesting thing is that they have a love for business. So one out of 25 interviewees for an executive position turned out to actually have psychopathic traits, which I thought was really, really interesting, considering only 1% of the population are psychopaths. That's four times the amount. Another thing is internet trolls. And I've actually always thought that because I don't really understand sometimes like why like some people really, really like commenting like mean things on the internet. So I this really makes sense how they tend to be psychopaths and they actually tend to have a dark tetrad, which is the intersection of four kind of bad personality traits, which is sadism um, and a few other traits as well. Thank you so much, Dia, for kind of showing us like the characteristics of a highly sensitive person, like a good person, and kind of the characteristics of like what an evil person would do. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today's show. And as always, we express our gratitude to Star Style Productions, Cynthia Bryan, Be the Star You Are, and our Voice America Empowerment crew, especially our voice engineer, Josh. Thanks to our guests from around the world, and a huge thank you to you, our listeners, for making us a top-rated program. Trust the science and discover the antidote. Always remember to speak up and speak out and express yourself. Thanks for joining us this week on Express Yourself, produced by Star Style Productions, LLC, as an international outreach program of Be The Star You Are charity. For more information about our show, be sure to visit ExpressYourselfTeenRadio.com. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern, when teens talk and the world listens on the Voice America Kids channel. Until then, remember to express yourself. Stars to shine between the lines if you would let yourself go